Welcome everyone to the Ali Houston Transforms podcast. I'm a former physicist who fixed my brain using nutrition and I now coach people to empower them to do the same. Um, if you're anyone you know could benefit from a mental health tune-up, head over to metsy.com, that's M-E-T-P-S-Y.com, where myself and psychiatrist Dr. Rachel Brown coach people to better mental health. I'm delighted to have with me today Ben Azadi, who's a best-selling author, a top 15 podcaster, and founder of Keto Camp. Welcome on, Ben. Ali, thank you so much for having me. I love the work you are doing, and uh, I'm excited to have a life-changing conversation with you today. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I'm glad we're managing expectations early on. We have to change lives. <laughs> Good. Got to set the bar high, really, really high. <laughs> so how about you just telling us your story and how you got to where you are now? For sure. So I grew up here in America. My parents actually immigrated from Iran to Miami Beach in the 1970s. And I was blessed enough to be born in America. I was born in Miami Beach, Florida, 1984. And I followed a standard American diet. And as you know, it's a very highly processed, toxic diet with Franken foods. And I felt really unhealthy growing up. I also looked unhealthy growing up. I was uh, obese for most of my life. I was depressed. Growing up, I had really low self-confidence, self, low self-esteem, and my mom worked at a couple of fast food restaurants, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't know if you have that. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You do have it over there. Okay. So she would bring me home Kentucky Fried Chicken, and as a kid, I thought it was the best thing ever. It's like, my mom is so cool. But of course, it's like highly uh, processed food, fried in vegetable oils, and I had uh, developed as a kid uh, addictive behaviors to sugar and eventually drugs. And it really was a result of my environment. My environment was toxic. And I really believe that we become our environment. So I became the toxic environment that was around me. And I had these bad addictions and behaviors. So I was very unhealthy. <clears throat> and this transferred to my adulthood, where I found myself now as a 23-year-old man back in 2007. I weighed 250 pounds at that time. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was on the internet looking for ways to end my life multiple times exploring suicide because I was just crying every day in pain. I was really rock bottom. And every time I thought of suicide and explored suicide, the first thing that came into my mind was, what about your mom? What about the devastation your mom would have to deal with if you took your life? And it stopped me because I didn't want to do that to my mom. She was and is my superhero. She did has done so much sacrifice and work so hard to support me and my sister that I didn't want to do that to her. So that was the only thing that that made me uh, that stopped me from pursuing suicide. If it wasn't for that, I think I would have probably pursued it and we would not be having the conversation today. So I knew I had to do something and I was playing the victim card. I was blaming everybody for my problems. Of course, I'm obese. I have my dad's genetics and he's type 2 diabetic and he's obese. I got his genes, so that's why it's just not fair. I just got his genes. So that was my victim mindset. And of course, I'm obese. My mom's bringing me home Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I, you know, she's enabling me and it's my slow metabolism and, you know, all these victim thoughts that came into play. And then my best friend, Ronald, he saw how much I was in pain and hurting. So he gave me a book and I really was not interested in reading books. I never really cared about books, but he said, read the book. I think it'll make a big difference for you. And I was just so desperate. So I read the book. And the book was called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. And the book is great. The book helped me understand daily habits. And daily habits 
compound over time to get you the results that you're having in life. So it helped me understand that, wow, I'm in this place right now, not because it happened overnight. It was these small behaviors that I did over time, these thoughts that I, were, that I was thinking, these the foods that are, I was putting in my mouth, and all of that compounded into me being obese, depressed, and hating life at that point. So that one book inspired me to pick up another book, and I got into the work of Dr. Wayne Dyer. And Dr. Wayne Dyer and his work has transformed my life. I remember him sharing something about a couple things that really made a big difference for me back then from Dr. Dyer. He said, if other people were the cause of your problems, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. <laughs> I'm like, damn, that's good. It hurt, but it's the truth. And then he said um, something to the extent of, you know, an orange, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Well, orange juice, obviously, because that's what's inside. Well, when life squeezes you, what comes out is what's inside of you. Uh, so when life applies pressure, what comes out are essentially the, th the thoughts that you have been thinking, what you've been manifesting. So I started to really dive into Dr. Wayne Dyer and Tony Robbins and Bob Proctor and all these incredible people, Earl Nightingale. And the whole new world opened up to me, man. I was just like, this is so cool. They have their own pain to purpose story. They were rock bottom. And look at all the cool things they did. And if they did it, that kind of gives me permission to do the same. And the most important thing that came out of reading those books was the fact that it's it prevent it stopped me, I should say, from playing the victim card. And it finally allowed me to create awareness enough to take ownership and responsibility. And I really believe that word responsibility is lost on a lot of people. Uh, to me, it means it is your ability to respond to life, your response ability. My ability to respond to life up until that point was poor. I was the victim, right? I was blaming everybody. But when I took responsibility, I stopped being the victim and I started to become the victor and everything changed. I started to move my body. I started to cut out people out of my environment that were not serving my goals. And I started eating real food. I stopped eating as much fast food. And in nine months, I went from 250 pounds to 170 pounds. I went from 34% body fat to as low as 6% body fat and finally achieved this magical six pack that I always wanted, right? This physical six pack that I always dreamed of. But most importantly, I achieved what I call a mental six pack and what the food did for my mood and what it did for my mental health. And that was about 14 years ago, Ali, it opened up um, an avenue for me to dive right into the health and fitness space. And I you know, along the way, I became a personal trainer. I had a CrossFit gym, and then I got certified as a health coach, and I've written some books and all that stuff. But it started with the pain, and the pain revealed the purpose. And uh, that is, you know, the mission is to educate and to inspire a billion people. That is the goal at Keto Camp, and we want to wake people up. And I know that if I could do it, and I was in such rock bottom that anybody else could do it, and I want to get that message out there. So that's where it all started for me. Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing your story. It's uh, incredibly inspiring and also sad that you had to go through that. Yeah, all part of it. All part. It's all on the way, right? And and, the, and I, back then I thought it was all in the way. Why is this happening to me? But now I look back and I'm like, it was all on the way. So yeah, thank you for listening to my story. Something that comes up a lot with coaching clients is this... Um, process of change and transformation where they engage with some engage with something in themselves um and have to 
put a name to that feeling or that sense of wanting to change and cross over a bridge, if you like, onto a new pasture. And very often um, um, people need a metaphor to latch onto, I think. And it's interesting that you, you know, they say when the student's ready, the teacher appears, you found these um, incredibly uh, charismatic and articulate people who were able to throw out these metaphors that appealed to you when you were ready to change. I really like the orange juice one. You know, why did that one appeal to you particularly, do you think? Is it because you're from Florida and they make oranges? Obviously, I'm just joking. But um, <laughs> what, no, why do you think it is? And were there any others that come to mind that were kind of powerful for you? Because I think this is actually sometimes vital to, in order for people to um, allow themselves to change and shed something old. Yeah, great question. You know, the, the orange juice metaphor from uh, Dr. Dyer stood out to me, not because I'm from Florida, <laughs> the sunshine state where we have a lot of oranges for sure, but it helped me understand the importance of the daily thoughts that we have every day. Because that's essentially when life is applying the pressure, what comes out is what I've been thinking about. And, and Dr. Dyer always used to say, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So I, I started to understand that when life has life had been applying a lot of pressure to me, and what came out was depression, suicide, hate, resentfulness, and anger. And that's because of the thoughts I was having. And if I could change my thoughts to um, serve me and have better thoughts, then when life applies pressure, what comes out of me would be, okay, where's the learning moment here? Where's the opportunity? And so that that's that was huge for me. It helped me understand the importance of the thoughts. And I remember Dr. Dyer also sharing that the average person has upwards of about 60,000 thoughts per day. And it's estimated that 90% of them are the same thoughts from yesterday and 85% of those thoughts are negative thoughts. And I, I didn't want to be the average. I, I wanted to really focus on those thoughts and it didn't happen overnight. I, we, we could consciously be aware and you know this, that I want to change my thoughts, but those thoughts come in so frequently that it takes time to change that paradigm. But, you know, over time I started to change that. And uh, one more metaphor, one more quote, I should say that made a big difference for me was from uh, Robert Heinlein. And he, he shared a quote, that I shared to this day that's super powerful. He said, in the absence of clearly defined goals, we become strangely loyal to performing daily trivia until ultimately we become enslaved by it. So for me, I didn't have clearly defined goals and my, my daily trivia was food and video games and drugs. But once I became clear on my goals and I defined them, no more uh, daily trivia for me. I was too busy focusing on my goal. So that to this day makes a big difference for me. Amazing. Yeah, the, the question of goal setting and uh, understanding your own motivations is obviously something that I take very seriously as a coach. And the psychology of change is something that uh, clients like to hear about typically. And But this comes up a lot that, you know, there's an iterative process between the body being healthy and the psychology being healthy. You know, sometimes... Um, you know, Georgia Ede has spoken about uh, trauma and how, um, you know, of course, we all wish we could wave a magic wand and um, someone's trauma and history could, negative history could go away. But we can't do that. So, uh, but the question is, why wouldn't you want to be at your healthiest in order to be able to deal with that trauma, with that negative psychology? So it's interesting that you mention dealing with the psychology first and then getting to the body. Um, 
do you feel like it was a kind of iteration where you went back and forth between the two? At what point did keto come in and did you notice any sort of um, big quantum leap beyond the, the psychological change that happened first? Yeah, I, I do. So for me, it, it was a combination of both, right? I started to study and then I started to move my body and eat, eat and eat better. So it was kind of hand in hand. But to your point, if you are feeding your body inflammatory foods and you're creating neuroinflammation, it's very hard to think better thoughts. It's very hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's very hard to be inspired and motivated and, and feel like you're going to get out of this. So that needs to be addressed absolutely 100%. Um, where keto came into play was actually not in the beginning for me. Uh, I did not even know about keto in 2008. I did more of like a exercising a lot and uh, eating, just changing my eating habits by eating real food. But I, I did it in a way that I wouldn't recommend to this day. So although I lost 80 pounds and I was super fit at 6% body fat and I looked really healthy on the outside, on the inside, I was not that healthy. I was still dealing with digestive issues and brain fog and acne, et cetera. So I was one of those fit, sick people. So after the transformation, yeah, I looked great and I, and I felt a lot better, but I still wanted to explore what real health felt like, true cellular health felt like. And I explored different avenues for many, many years. I was a vegan for a year and a half and that, you know, was a complete failure. And then it wasn't until 2013 that I discovered uh, keto and intermittent fasting. And then I started to apply it. So that was about 10 years ago now, because we're in 2023, that I started doing keto and applying it. And at that point, that's where I was like, oh my gosh, my results went from right here to another level. And I really fell in love with keto. I fell in love with intermittent fasting and I, I've been studying it and teaching it ever since. It's like, they're such powerful tools. Yeah. And this is another thing about metaphor. They often start in the body. You know, you're talking about the transformation um, to make your, your, your juice better, really. That whatever it is, this force that was in you that you wanted to transform into something really positive. And, um, there's something about the feeling of, of transforming into something better that you can't really describe. You know, you're talking about going from one level to another, um, but it kind of sounds arbitrary to someone who maybe is at that lower level who couldn't, you can't imagine what it feels like to, to really go up that notch to maybe a level you've never felt before, or maybe you haven't felt since you were a, a child. Um, so, what was that like to have having been kind of fit and sick, um, but much better than you were? What what was that like to go that kind of extra league up? Well, what's interesting is that although I was really lean and fit, um, for two years it took about two years after my transformation for my mindset to actually catch up to the fact that I was finally a, a lean, healthy per, or a lean fit person, I should say. So even though I was very lean for two years after that, I still felt like my mindset still, I still felt like I was the obese man. I still was kind of afraid to take off my shirt and, I, and my mind, it took a while for that to catch up, which is very interesting. Uh, so it took a lot of repetition with my thoughts and a lot of, you know, continuously self-developing uh, myself with books and, and programs, et cetera. But in terms of like the level up, when I look back, I, I and as 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 I was going through it, uh, I didn't really realize that I was leveling up like month by month, year by year, et cetera. But I look back and I'm like, yeah, I, I improved a lot. But was when I was going through it, I wasn't really aware of these different levels. So 
what I always look back and what I share with my students is that, you know, the goal is not perfection. The goal is just improvement. And we just want to beat yesterday. <laughs> if we could get a little bit better today than we were yesterday and make those small little tweaks, I really believe the small tweaks lead to, to giant peaks. And that's really what it's a, about, those small little behavior changes. And then over time, just like that book, the first book I read, The Slight Edge, over time, those small tweaks and behavior changes, they compound over time. And then you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, I was all the way there. I was in chapter one and now I'm on chapter 11. And something that's important to notate with what you shared in your question, the way you kind of brought up the question, which was really well done, is that we tend to compare uh, our, our results to somebody else. Like somebody else who's watching this right now or listening to this are probably thinking, man, there's no way I could get to Ben Ben's level. And they're comparing their chapter three or whatever it is to my chapter 30. Everybody has a different story. So we don't want to do that. We want to compare our own chapters. Like we're, we're, what chapter were you on yesterday or last year? And then just improve upon that. That That is the ultimate goal. Uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, sometimes people who, who've just met me and didn't know me when I had an extra, you know, 40, 50 pounds on me and was sad all the time and anxious and um couldn't think straight they'll say oh you don't need to be on a diet look at you and they don't realize and um i wonder if you can think about some uh some times where what you've done has not worked for others because I know that that's that's something I'm keen to explore. You said that veganism didn't work for for you. Um, you know I can understand why. I, from my point of view, it's it's uh, it's a guaranteed deficiency diet. But some people insist on doing it. Some people can be healthy doing it. And um, you know it's almost like the the meeting of values sometimes just isn't the same, and that's okay. Everyone has to take their individual approach. So have you have you ever seen a situation where um you've maybe you've had to work with a client who had completely different values to you or um wasn't that interested in maybe doing the same things that you did and you know how did how does that kind of situation play out It actually happens a lot even to this day uh, a lot of people they'll discover me maybe on my YouTube channel or my podcast or maybe they come across my book whatever it is and they'll get into my world. And let's say they come into my uh, academy. I have a keto camp academy. And a lot of them are joining because they want to lose weight. They want to either like reverse their insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes. They want to lose 50 pounds, 100 pounds, 200 pounds. And that's their sole focus, the weight loss. And my goal is to educate them and teach them that that should not be the main goal because weight gain, being overweight is not the problem. It, it is a symptom. It is a result of the problem. That was the mistake I made in the beginning. I thought it was the actual problem, the weight gain, and we should focus on the weight loss. So I used to teach calorie deficit and getting in, you know, exercising more, eating less, and it does people a huge disservice. And I realized that over the years. So when people get into my world, their their value is at that, I want to get to my goal weight. I want to get to 150 pounds, Ben. And I think that's a great goal. Don't get me wrong, but it shouldn't be the main focus because the weight gain and, and the, the weight the weight gain is a symptom and the weight loss will happen as a side effect of the body getting healthy. So my job is to just teach them about how their hormones work, change their eating behaviors, dietary uh, patterns, when they eat, um, type of foods they eat, and also their mindset and teach them to focus on hormones and inflammation. And as the hormones get 
better at doing their job, at connecting to those receptor sites and telling the cells to perform their job, then the weight loss will come off as a side effect. So a lot of people, they're so fixated on the scale. And here, here's a, you know, this happens often, by the way, and I'm sure you've probably seen this too. Somebody will be with me for a couple months and they're like, Ben, you know, I've been with you for two months now and um, I've only lost 10 pounds. And then I would ask them, what else have you noticed? Well, you know, my uh, clothes fit a lot better. Um, I was taking three blood pressure medications. Now I'm down to one. My doctor says I sh my insulin is reduced in half. Uh, my friends are complimenting me all the time, but I'm only down 10 pounds. <laughs> and I want to, you know, just scream at them and be like, look at all the amazing things that are happening, right? But I'm doing it in a loving, coachable, coachable way. And I teach them, you're getting healthy. The weight will continue to come off. But the cool thing about doing it this way, yeah, it might take a little longer, but the cool thing is that it stays off because we're focusing on the cause. So that's usually a mismatch in the beginning. And if they really understand, then they start to focus on the non-scale victories and they're in it for the long run. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this tension between a client's values and goals and sometimes, you know, the, the scientific uh, advantage of certain ways of looking at things or certain ways of doing things. And um, the perspective on uh, measurable outcomes is something that comes up with many clients in many successive sessions before it starts to sink in that I'm gently challenging them on their idea that weight is the best measure, you know? Um, it's funny because some people, it really does start off about weight but they're super triggered by it, you know? I had a client who didn't want to uh, work in kilograms because it was too triggering, so they needed to work in pounds, and that was enough for them. But then, like you say, you can lose hardly any weight and change shape completely. You sometimes see before and after shots in particularly keto or paleo or carnivore groups where, you know, they look like different people, but they've hardly lost any weight because the quality of their tissues has just gone up so much. They've replaced uh, fat cells or the, what's in the fat cells with, you know, uh, bone and muscle and cartilage and tendons and all the rest of it. Um, and waist measurement and um, uh, subjective mood measurement and, you know, whether they like what they see when they look in the mirror, all of these things are perfectly good measures that eventually people realize are actually much freer for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And the weight, <laughs> the scale is a damn liar. It's like, let's face it there. You just made a brilliant point. There's so many variables that the scale is not telling you, like maybe you got a little bit of healthier cartilage or some healthier protein. And that's kind of not showing why you're not down a little bit. You know, we know that if you're sore from a workout, you'll retain more water and you might show see that on the scale. Are you gaining fat? No. Women who have a menstrual cycle, they'll tend to retain more water. That scale might go up. So it's just a, not the best metric. And the thing is that we've been brainwashed uh, by uh, society to, to believe that's the number one metric. Weight loss, count your points, count your calories. And it's still to this day, we have a lot of these fitness experts and people that are in the health and nutrition space, dietitians, doctors that are doing the community a big disservice. Now, we're not saying, I'm not saying calories don't matter. They do. What I am saying is that they're not important. They're not important to focus on. They are very low on the priority list. Just telling somebody to eat less and move more, 
does them a huge disservice. First of all, it's a slap in the, in the face of this human, incredible, amazing human body that we have. It's just not as simple as that. But it's like somebody going to, let's say it's um, a financial workshop. Here's the analogy. Somebody goes to a financial workshop, we'll say with Warren Buffett, because he's one of the richest men in the world, and he would be fit to teach a financial workshop. So they show up and they're learning about finances and they're like, uh, I want to ask Warren a question. So they raise their hand and they're they're saying, Warren, question. And Warren chooses that person. And the question from the gentleman is, Warren, how do I get rich like you? And Warren says, oh, just spend less than you earn. Next question. It's like, okay, that makes sense, but it's not giving you the solution. That's exactly what we're doing to people who are just teaching people to count calories and move more. It doesn't give them the solution. I, I completely agree. You know, there's all this stuff going on at the moment about... Um dietdoctor.com kind of pivoting towards this satiety per calorie measurement and whatever you think of that I think personally it focuses on the wrong side of the energy energy out equation you know I kind of call myself a recovering physicist partly because I um, got better physically and mentally but also because I'm kind of recovering from the idea that there's this uh, very simplistic equation of calories in calories out and there's deeper meaning behind it. And the metabolism, like you say, when you start understanding about hormones and being able to rev up the metabolism by what you eat, then actually you come back to the title of Gary Taub's first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, where if you bring in calories that rev up your metabolism, you find yourself with more mental energy, more physical energy. You, 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 know, you, you quite often generate more heat and you actually are burning more calories. But... It's not because you're purposefully exercising and eating less, yet you might actually be eating more. That's right. Yeah, and exactly. And ketosis is a perfect example, right? When somebody's in ketosis, we know that ketones are a, sig a signaling molecule to the mitochondria, which communicate to the mitochondria to make more mitochondria that goes through this mitogenesis process. So that's why we see the electron transport chain is showing that ketones will yield you about 400% more ATP so increased energy means increased basal, basal metabolic rate. So you're naturally just going to be burning more calories. But I'm curious, Ali, you talked about the diet doctor. I'm not familiar with that. What are they doing with calories per time? What, what were you mentioning there? Yeah, so the there's a big focus on a guide that they're bringing out on satiety per calorie. So it's, I think, partially based on Ted Naiman's protein to energy ratio but it incorporates more features. And there's a debate going on on Twitter mainly at the moment um, between advocates of satiety per calorie, which is, uh, you know, you, I've got to hand it to them. It's, it's aiming to be a simple metric, which if you're trying to get people on board with an idea, it's a good idea to have a simple metric there. But detractors are saying, well, I mean, satiety per calorie means that um, if you want to stop eating then um, if you focus on that side of the equation, broccoli probably wins, right? But is broccoli mm. really the ideal food? And also satiety per calorie, you might end up with the situation where, for example, um, beef dripping or beef tallow or butter loses. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're looking to rev up your metabolism to feel energetic in body and mind, is it really a good idea to suggest limiting these foods um, and to suggest that you kind of pack as much 
fibrous foods in as, as you can. So there's, there's some criticism of the satiety per calorie metric that I can completely understand because I th personally think it focuses on the wrong side of the equation. We should be maximizing energy out through the foods we put in. Um, but I can see why they want to come up with a, a an easy heuristic for people just to look at and say, okay, these are the foods that are that score pretty well. I'll try and look at that. Interesting to know what you think about that um, that kind of approach. Yeah, I didn't know that they were doing that. Now, I think that's a great approach, uh, a step up versus the regular calories in versus calories out crowd. I do think it's an improvement. However, I, I, I tend to lean towards your side and I, I think that it's still kind of a distraction, right? The, the, the focus should not be on calories, even if it's satiety per calories, because there's a lot of loopholes. You just mentioned a few with the butter and the broccoli, et cetera. But also the focus should be cellular metabolism. It should be inflammation. I don't care how many satiety per calories you're having, if it's perfect, whatever ratio they're requiring you to get. If you have too much inflammation around your membranes, it doesn't matter. Your, your fat burning hormones are not going to do its job. The metabolism is just not going to work. And that's not going to teach you about your metabolism. It's just going to teach you about having certain foods. Now, don't get me wrong. It sounds like a huge improvement towards regular calorie counting, but just based off what you shared, I got to do more research. I don't think it's the optimal way to go about it. I, I just don't. I, I'm kind of leaning towards your side as well. I mean, it started an interesting debate because, you know, there's people who want to bring in as much complexity as they can to get a very complete picture. But 99% of people, I don't know if you've found this, you know, I think it might be fair to call you and, you and me nutrition nerds um, <laughs> uh, or, you know, highly interested in the science. And I'd say 99% of people just do not want to read scientific papers on a, ever or on a regular basis. And translating what is true into something which humans want to actually consume and listen to and use on a day-to-day -day basis is not trivial. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that, that's something that I'm challenged with when I create content. It's like, I want to share a whole bunch of studies, but I'm like, I, I don't think this is going to land very well with the general audience. It's just going to go over their heads. So I, I like to like maybe reference a couple and use a lot of analogies that really works with people. But to your point, I, I, I'm not so sure that is the best approach to go about it. Uh, I, I do love the idea of focusing on protein. I think protein is very important, especially animal-based protein. But should that be the main focus? Should we be teaching people to use most of their bandwidth on calculating their satiety per calories? Probably not. I, I don't think so. I'd be interested to know, talking about content, you know, what's been the most kind of um, repeatedly popular or requested type of guide or um thing that's really landed with your audience and what's been the most useful uh, in terms of the the feedback they've given well i do a live stream on my um social media channels every wednesday at 12 p.m eastern time unless i'm traveling but i'm pretty consistent with that i've been doing that for a few years now and i, I just show up and answer questions as much as many questions as i can in about 45 minutes and every week i seem to get the same question which is i'm doing keto or i'm thinking about doing keto and my cholesterol is up or I'm concerned about my cholesterol going up. It's always a cholesterol question. My doctor says my cholesterol went from 180 to 220 and he wants to put me on a statin. Um, it's always a cholesterol question. That's like the most common one. And, you know, of course, this is not medical advice. But when somebody tells me their cholesterol has gone up from 180 to 220, 
and they're concerned, I tell them congratulations. That is awesome. You know, cholesterol is so important, as you know. Every cell has a membrane, the cell membrane, uh, this lipid bilayer, lipid meaning fat. The membrane is made up of protein, saturated fat, and cholesterol. Your membranes love cholesterol. You know this. The brain loves cholesterol. It makes your sex hormones. It also helps with bile to break down fat. And so I congratulate them and I say, look, total cholesterol in itself is not enough of a marker to make this conclusion that you should go on a statin. Actually, I think it's criminal to make that conclusion if you're not looking at the other markers. So I always tell them, get a full lipid panel done. Let's look at your triglycerides, your HDL. Let's get that ratio. And then your LDL, but also your LDL particle sizes, because we don't want to just do total LDL. There could be a high total LDL, but the majority of it could be these large and fluffy particles, which are super healthy and totally fine versus the small and sticky. And then get inflammatory markers as well, because um, it's really inflammation that's going to drive this plaque uh, in the arteries and, and, and cause this buildup. And if, let's say they're doing all that and their markers are still wonky and their doctor still wants to put them on a statin, then I would say, okay, before you do that, go get a calcium score. Like that'll just take care of everything. Let's see if you have any plaque built up. So to answer your question, it's always the cholesterol thing. It comes up every single week. And I do my best to teach people that it's actually a really good thing to have higher cholesterol levels. You're going to feel better and think better as well. Totally. It's funny, isn't it? How cardiologists tend to jump to that uh, place of, of prescribing a statin very quickly. But if you look at the very conservative, sober um, risk calculators, then LDL isn't particularly um, doesn't particularly drive cardiac risk, and I think it's it, it probably comes down to what you're saying that there's different types of LDL, and you know the oxidized LDL can be you know the smaller ones can be dangerous. It, it it's complicated, isn't it? And um, I I love what you say about if you're still worried to get a, a coronary artery calcium scan. I was um, chatting to Scott Murray, who's a brilliant cardiologist, interventional cardiologist, a very careful guy. And he also recommends doing a, um, a soft plaque uh, angiogram, um, which is a CT scan that measures for the, the soft plaques that might be there too. Um, he actually said 45 years old is a really good kind of sweet spot age to, to get your full lipid panel put it into the risk calculator, use a risk calculator that uses the coronary artery calcium score, even if that's a zero score or a low score. You know, if you've got family history, particularly try to get a, you know, a, a, a CT angiogram and see if there's any soft plaque. And if really that's clear, then, you know, your cardiologist has no business telling you not to do a keto diet, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great advice right there. Yeah, it's so true. You know, and I, I don't blame the, the doctors that are prescribing statins. It's not because they want to do harm to people and their patients. That's just what they've been taught, right? It's just the system. The system is broken. Uh, it's profitable to prescribe statins. But yeah, that is not the right approach to just go on a statin. You want to explore all other options because, as you know, statins could be bad news long term. And um, the goal is not even to lower your cholesterol. I remember there was a study from Harvard. I forget what year it came out, maybe 2008. And it showed that more people die from heart disease with normal to low cholesterol than those with high cholesterol, right? Uh, it's not really the cholesterol that's the problem. And you've probably heard the analogy from somebody that's been on your show. It's like blaming cholesterol for heart attacks and heart disease is like blaming firefighters 
for the fire in your neighborhood. It's like every time I see a building on fire in my neighborhood, I see firefighters. Therefore, they're at the they're at the scene of the crime. I'm going to blame them, right? Cholesterol is at the scene of the crime of people who have heart attacks and strokes because it's there to repair the damage from inflammation. So, okay, what's causing inflammation? Now we're down the right track. But cardiologists, uh, conventional ones, are not going to ask that question. What's causing the inflammation? That's the real question we want to ask ourselves. Yeah, this root cause analysis, which appeals to me as someone who's worked in physics and engineering, um, it, it baffles people when I ask them if they've got a kind of chronic health condition. How is your doctor on root cause? It kind of they kind of look like well, it never came up, and why didn't it come up? Uh, what What do you think in your keto camp um, coaching experience and teaching experience is a really sort of fast way to understand root cause. I, I always talk about, um, in my book, Keto Flex, I talk about three steps to healing the body. So step number one is identify the interference. And then step number two is work on removing the interference. And then step number three is allow your body to heal, right? Sounds simple. Uh, and it really is, but on paper it is. But once you start applying it and getting to the cause, it's really interferences, it's multiple things. So um, a good approach would be, let's do comprehensive lab work, right? Labs are great uh, a great tool to give you clues. I'm not saying we treat the lab work, but we get lab work done, comprehensive panel, full thyroid panel with the antibodies, inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, homocysteine, fibrinogen, A1C, CBC. So look at the immune system, look at the liver, look at the kidney, uh, and then maybe some hormones as well. And then look at the lab results, not from the ranges on that, report, because we know that's the average of everybody and people are sick, but look at it from a functional lens, which is much more narrow. And then you could see, okay, this is out of range. And then you could kind of put clues together. Uh, and I'm saying the practitioner can, the average person probably cannot. So you probably want to hire somebody who understands this to look at your labs for you. And then they could ask you questions about your lifestyle and then put together a root cause analysis based off of your answers, the lab work, and then you have a custom protocol. It doesn't have to be complicated. This could be done in an hour. Uh, you just got to get the labs done, find somebody to read it, go through a, a health history. I always go through a comprehend, comprehensive, comprehensive, excuse me, health history with people. I want to know about their environmental toxicity. I want to know about their current eating habits. Do they consume vegetable oils? Are they consuming 400 grams of carbs per day? So that all combined together will give the person a good customized approach and avenue. Um, so what do you think about that? What do you do with your clients? I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, the certainly from the uh, the sort of physical mechanistic standpoint, I don't think you can get any better. You know, you've just gone over all of the, the, the major points in um, understanding the types of kind of dysfunction and inflammation that are characteristic of uh, of chronic disease. Um, you know, there's certainly subjective measures like mood scores and um, there's standardized, semi-standardized and standardized scoring panels for various mental illnesses, um, which some people like to do kind of at the start of the process and then almost have like a before and after. Uh, of their of their mental illness uh, score um, that might be unique to whatever diagnosis they have or identify with. Um, and I suppose another way of thinking of root cause is what 
obstacles get in the way of them hitting their health goals. So mm. it might not necessarily just be the sort of mechanistic root cause in their tissues, but what in their motivation sabotages what they're trying to do day to day. And, you know, that could be a whole range of things. And sometimes you don't find out about it until session 10 or <laughs> whatever, because maybe they didn't think it was relevant or maybe it's deeply hidden and maybe they're ashamed of it. And that comes into a lot. And there's, there's things that drive people's addictive behaviors, which go well beyond mitochondrial function. Um, some things in people's past around food are extremely harrowing. And so even sometimes just letting people air that in a non-judgmental space, I find is a huge part of the root cause analysis. You know, I, I, I could give half a dozen examples which have nothing to do with each other. It might be around how your caregiver gave you food which gave you mm -hmm. a complex around food. It might be that you were raised on really rubbish food that you hated. It might be that you used food to patch up an emotional um, kind of hole in your life. It might be that um, you were given conflicting information about food and that you developed a bad relationship with food because of that. You know, all of these this comes back to the sort of iteration between um, the the mechanistic cellular stuff and the psychological stuff. And I'm sure that comes up all the time for you, you know, the, the, the addiction side, the, um, the, the inner saboteur, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. And those are very important avenues to explore uh, because it's not just a matter of, okay, here's your intermittent fasting schedule. Here's the foods you need to eat to get into ketosis. There's so much more than that. So that's why it's important to have a coach, have somebody that you're working with who could uncover why that person, like you said, is self-sabotaging themselves. I have found that a lot of people who end up making progress and then going back to their old ways and self-sabotaging, we could say, we could use that term is because of their self-image of themselves. They have a, a really poor self-image and they don't feel like they deserve to hit that goal or to get the rewards in their life. And I like to your point, that goes back to their upbringing and their their paradigm, that whatever that subconscious mind has developed over the first seven years of them being on planet Earth. Now they're a 40-year-old man or woman and they're still kind of running on that same paradigm. So having a coach like yourself to unpack where that came from and then the cool thing is that you know this, you could actually change the paradigm and rewire that part of the subconscious mind so that you could break through and, and not self-sabotage yourself and increase your self-image, increase your self-worth. There's a, there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read it um, or heard of it. It's called uh, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Have you ever heard of that book? No, I've never heard of it. So it's, it's an old book. It's from, I think it's from the 60s or 70s, but it's all about this. And he was actually a, he was actually a plastic surgeon but he wrote a book about the self-image and it being this, um, he called it psycho-cybernetics. But he, he wrote the book because he noticed something. He was, people were coming to his clinic to, to get plastic surgery. So let's say it's a woman who has, a, a, a lady who has a big nose and she's like, I want you to fix my nose, make it smaller. Somebody who has like extra fat on their face to make it thinner, whatever it was. They had these poor self-image uh, 
mentality about themselves. So they got plastic surgery. And what he noticed was that although he would perform the surgery and their nose was fixed, I'm putting that in quotation marks, whatever thing they wanted to fix was fixed. It didn't solve their problem. They would still look in the mirror and see the old nose. They would see the old deformity. They would still, the subconscious mind never changed and they still felt the same way, even though the surgery was performed. So he wanted to determine what the hell, what the heck happened. And he chalked it up to the self-image and how the subconscious mind was never changed. And it isn't until you change that. And that's kind of what happened with me with my, you know, losing the weight. And then two years later, I finally caught up. So yes, that was a long explanation to say, I agree with you hundred percent. The self-image needs to be changed. Yeah. I'm, I, I just Googled that book and I'm going to get it. Um, Thanks for the recommendation. I, You're going to love that book. It's right up your alley. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favorite films ever is Inside Out, the Pixar one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where they, they have this, for people who haven't seen it, this representation of the inner self and of um, our core beliefs being formed. And it's a similar thing. You know, you can move to a different city or a different country you can have plastic surgery. You can spend money on new clothes all the time. You can buy drinks for all of your friends, but it won't change your core beliefs about yourself. Yeah. And they're, they're not necessarily hardwired, but they're um, very intensely wired. And I think the, the cybernetics thing kind of speaks to that, that, untying a knot is quite often a metaphor that people think of when they feel better about what was plaguing them and stopping them from hitting their health goals. And um, in Inside Out, it's kind of like a, a ball is produced, like a ball of light as a core belief. And it might be that, you know, I'm not good enough. I can't do things well. Um, nobody likes me. And you know, we've all met people who you know they feel like that about themselves and they're lovely and they would never treat other people like they weren't good enough, but they can't be kind to themselves in the same way. And I think sometimes the um, the biggest, most important breakthrough for people, besides the good information about a healthy diet and lifestyle, is that it's okay to be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. Uh, I remember when I was having those negative thoughts, the, the I call it the stinking thinking. I, if I would have said the things I was saying to myself, to my best friend, my best friend would not be my friend anymore. It's like the things we say to ourselves. Uh, it's the conversations that you have with yourself is the, it's the most important. You, you are the most influential person that you'll speak to today and tomorrow and the day after. So going back to your point about like the self-sabotage, it's kind of like, you have a goal and let's say, you know, the goal would be, I want to, I'm in Miami. So I want to drive to Orlando, Florida. It's a three hour drive, three and a half hour drive. So that's the goal. And you can relate that goal to whatever goal you have with your health or whatever. And you get in the car and you put the address in your GPS app, whatever it is. And you put Orlando, Florida. So you start driving. And then an hour later, you notice you're right back at home and you're like, Whoa, I had, I know consciously this is the goal to go to Orlando, but I keep coming back to Miami and you try again tomorrow and you may go a little farther maybe, or a little bit shorter, but you keep ending back up at your house and you're like, what is going on? It's been months. I'm not able to get to Orlando. 
It isn't in until you change the programming down here of the software, the subconscious mind, then eventually it understands that's where you want to go. It's going to keep deviating back to what it's known your entire life. So you got to change that programming. It doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen over time for sure. Yeah, and maybe you could talk more about Keto Camp and what you provide for people. Yeah, so Keto Camp is my company, and we have our Keto Camp podcast. You are going to come on very, very soon. And uh, we have our YouTube channel. We have all our social medias. So we have that free content. We deliver a lot of content, three podcasts a week, YouTube videos every day, social media content every day, all free stuff, free guides, et cetera. And then we have our paid programs, which is our Keto Camp Academy is our signature course. And on the signature course, we have, it's um, my four pillar system on how to do keto, intermittent fasting, carnivore, et cetera, in a step-by-step -step system. And then we offer health coaching. I have three health coaches on my team and they do one-on-one -on -one coaching with the members. I also do um, group coaching calls where I hop on the calls and I just answer questions a couple of times per month. So we have community, we have support, we do monthly challenges. Right now we're doing a, a steps challenge where the goal is to get like 10,000 steps a day. And we, we post, we take a screenshot, like I'm using my aura ring. We post that in the group, hit my 10K today. Didn't hit it today. I'm going to go for it tomorrow, but we support each other either way. So it's our online community. Um, it's called the Keto Camp Academy. We have members from all over the world. It's an incredible program. We have, uh, we launched it like four years ago. And that's the thing that I put my, most of my energy into serving those students in there. Fantastic. And what do you think is has been the the biggest most important change to you over these last you know ten years or so that you've been interested in doing keto? The biggest change in in specifically with keto? Yeah. yeah that's a good that's a good question. Um, well, the the biggest mistake I'll say with keto that I see people make out there, I think that'll be the biggest lesson too is um, consuming the wrong fats. Uh, in the beginning, in 2013, when I started it, I had no idea that these vegetable oils, PUFAs, were so inflammatory because they're all keto-friendly, right? And you know, you see the American Heart Association here in America, they're putting their stamp of approval on them, so you feel like they're safe to consume. And then, of course, uh, you know, I started digging into the research many years ago, and I uncovered that they are really bad for you, arguably worse than sugar, arguably worse than smoking. You know, I know I had Dr. Kay Shanahan on my podcast recently, and she says that they're worse than sugar and smoking. So that has been the biggest thing, uh, the vegetable oils, the seed oils, and how how detrimental they are. And the reason they are, and I know you've interviewed a lot of people on your podcast about this topic as well, but just to make the point, I asked Dr. Kay Shanahan, if for those who don't know who that is, she's a medical doctor. She wrote a fantastic book called Deep Nutrition, and uh, she was the nutritionist for the Los Angeles Lakers, which is a NBA basketball team here in America when Kobe Bryant used to play. And I said, Dr. K, three scenarios. Which scenario is worse for you? Scenario number one, you're smoking cigarettes every day. Scenario number two, you are eating processed sugar every day. Scenario number three, you're eating vegetable oils every day. And she laughed and she said, that's an easy question. It is obviously the vegetable oils. And here's her explanation. She said, smoking cigarettes not good for you, of course. But once you finish the last puff, the damage has been done. That cigarette smoke is not bioaccumulating in your mitochondria in your body. So the damage is done right after you're done. Sugar, of course, is not good for you. Uh, but if you know you could burn it off, it, it gets stored as regular body fat. You could exercise, burn it off, do some things to mitigate the damage. The vegetable oils, they are they stick around for a very long time. She says the half-life 
of linoleic acid, which is this omega-6 uh, vegetable oil, is 680 days. So that means if we remove them today, 680 days later, half of them will still remain in our body fat, creating systemic inflammation, not just the body fat, but in your brain cells, in your brain, creating neuroinflammation. So they stick around a lot longer. So that's the biggest thing I've learned. And I'm really diligent about avoiding processed vegetable oils, where to the point, like sometimes my fiance gets annoyed with me because when I go to restaurants, first thing I ask the server is, what do you cook your food in? And even if it's the fanciest restaurant in the world, nine times out of 10, it's a canola or a soybean or olive oil that's cut with soybean. So I tell them, and my fiance rolls her eyes, I always say, we're allergic to vegetable oils. Can you use olive oil that's not cut? Can you grill it? Can you use butter? And they're always going to say, yeah, because you're allergic and they want to pay attention now. So what I've done, you're going to love this, Allie. I've been telling my students to do the same thing for years. Tell them you're allergic. Tell them you're allergic. And most of them don't do it. And I started to frustrate me. And I started to think, why aren't they doing it? Is it because they feel embarrassed? It's like they might be at a dinner with people and they feel uncomfortable. I think probably that's what it is. So I developed um, this. <laughs> you're going to love this. It's called a seed oil allergy card. <laughs> and I take this to restaurants and on the card, it says allergy card, dear chef, I have food allergies to vegetable oils. In order for me to avoid an allergic reaction, I must avoid everything marked off below. Canola, grapeseed, corn, safflower, cottonseed, rice bran, sunflower, soybean. The following alternatives are safe. Avocado oil, duck fat, olive oil, beef tallow, lard, coconut oil, ghee, butter, Please make sure the approved alternatives are not cut with the allergic options. Thank you for keeping me safe. So my students and anybody who's listening to this or watching this could get this for free. And you can get a PDF image of this and just save it on your phone as an image and just show that to the server. And boom, takes care of that problem when you're eating out and traveling. So you can get this over at seedoilcard.com. It's completely free. That's fantastic. Seedoilcard.com. That's brilliant because... I think that is a big factor for people. The the social factor, you know, I actually spoke to someone who has a potentially fatal allergy and they carry an EpiPen around with them and they would rather take their chances than put a, a friend out that they're out for dinner with. And Are you serious? Feel rude, yeah. That's how bad oh it can gosh. get, this, uh, this fear of... Um, of the social pressure of looking weird pressure. sounding weird oh my gosh exactly yeah um so i get it i do understand and it's great to be able to say these days something like that and have it taken seriously because everyone does now sadly because our allergen our allergies have got so bad that people are having these strong reactions and that's a whole other can of worms isn't it but um yes yeah love that what was the name of the website again it's seedoilcard.com. Brilliant. And even if you just want to say to people there's an allergy, then, um, you know, the restaurant has to take that seriously. They do. And, you know, we're not, we're, we're kind of lying, but we're not really lying because we all have some sort of allergy to vegetable oils. There's going to be an inflammatory response. Now, I'm not saying you have to get an EpiPen if you have them. In the case of your client, they do, but there's going to be an, uh, an allergic uh, inflammatory response. So we're, we're, it's kind of a loose truth, if you want to call it that. <laughs> yeah, if people feel bad about it being a lie, I think that's fair what you say, that it's not an out-and-out -out lie. But also, last I checked, it's not a crime to 
um, tell a white lie to waiting staff. So I'm sure you, you there, the, the, the keto gods will forgive you. <laughs> I think so. And, and it's different than saying you prefer not to have a vegetable oil because then they're not really going to take it serious. You, you never know. And look, I treat servers wonderful. Like I tip, tip them well. I recommend you do the same thing. So, you know, they're, they're going to accommodate and just treat them well, tip them well. And it's, it's, it's no big deal. It really isn't. Yeah. And I guess, um, you know, some people take the the view that a little bit of it now and again is um, not the end of the world, which I can sympathize with because it is a dose response curve. You know, the dose makes the poison and yes. linoleic acid in all whole foods. So if you're not eating a lot of linoleic acid often, especially if you're uh, in keto in ketosis, then you're going to burn it off first, preferentially. Um, and so, you know, I'm very wary, and I try to minimize it as much as possible. But it's not something that I think people need to necessarily be um, very scared of if they're, you know, doing everything else right ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah, can I can I add to that? Um... I agree with you 100%. And when I talk about vegetable oils and linoleic acid, I'm primarily talking about the processed kind, the ones that are in vegetable oils, the cooking oils. I'm not really talking about the ones in whole food. I'm not concerned about that. Uh, I, I A lot of people throw out the baby with the bathwater saying you have to avoid linoleic acid of all types and avoid all omega-6 fats. I don't agree with that. There's a difference between these adulterated bastardized, heavily processed omega-6 fats, and then the ones that are not processed, the ones that are found in food. And your body, to your point, could get away with that. And actually, some of them could be very healthy. The membrane loves some omega-6 fats, as long as it's not processed. It's really the processed ones that I'm referring to. Not all omega-6 fats are bad. Not all linoleic fats are bad. But the majority of the oils that are being used are the ones that are heated at high temperatures, using deodorants and detergents and all these different chemicals, those are the ones we want to avoid as much as possible. And if anyone's really uh, interested in doing the maths, then it's probably, um, you, you would you would find, no matter what experts you ask, some kind of opinion on this and there's no uh, accepted figure. But I always think about um, something that Tucker Goodrich put up on the comments of the blog Hyperlipid years ago, which was a study that showed basically when you you know you're studying cancer in mice or rats you can't you can't actually give them cancer um unless there's linoleic acid in the food uh, which is a very interesting result and then the the degree of easiness of giving them cancer goes up linearly with the amount of linoleic acid that's in their mm. food up to about 4% and then it levels off so in terms of mice or rat uh, metabolism, 4% saturates the danger to maximum. So if you're a, a rat, then you don't want any of your calories to be linoleic acid. Well, you, you don't want, um, you don't want uh, certainly 4%, but if it's more than 4%, it might as well be, you know, the maximum. So in humans, it may be a similar curve because you know our mitochondria have a lot in common, which is why these kinds of studies are quite useful for uh, for humans. It's it's something that I think about quite a lot, and so occasionally I'll do a calculation. How if if I'm eating um, egg yolks or uh, commercially raised pork or chicken 
or using or eating bacon, lard, um, looking at the linoleic acid level, you can do a quick calculation and see what percentage of your day's calories come from that. And I would say that if it's kind of above 5%, then it's probably a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, if it's if it's lower than 2%, then, then that's probably okay because that's kind of the level that's in beef fat, for example. Yeah. So that's the kind of range that I think of. I don't know. I, I don't know if you ever sort of go down into the nitty gritty like that with your clients, or or how many are actually interested in that, but um, or whether they just want a kind of uh, list of foods. Yeah, I know you you said it well. You know, it's really the percentage, and you want you don't want to have a high percentage of it. A couple two percent shouldn't be a big big deal, especially because it's going to be naturally found in those foods. Um, I remember when I interviewed. Paul Saladino, he he explained something similar to what you said about the four percent in the the mice study, and it's there there it's hard sometimes to extrapolate what happens in, in animals to humans, but this one makes sense to me. But um, the overall goal with why we're having this conversation on vegetable oils is just to do your best to minimize the hits. You you want to take less hits, like great athletes, they take less hits towards the second half of their career. It extends their career. We want to do the same thing with our career, our life, essentially. So take less hits, make the request. And if you are getting it from uh, pastured pork or, you know, free range pastured chicken or whatever it is, like, that's no big deal. It's really the ones that are coming in uh, high amounts of these vegetable oils found in cooking oils. That's the big one we want to avoid. Absolutely. You mentioned Paul Saladino, Kate Shanahan, a couple others. Um, has has there been any podcast guests where you know you really felt like you were uh, interviewing one of your top heroes? Yes, um, my mentor, Doctor Pampa, Doctor Daniel Pampa. He he was my first guest. We're about to hit episode five hundred and fifty. I think tomorrow is actually episode five hundred and fifty. So he congratulations. Was my Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, since he was my first guest and he's been on, I think, four times ever since. But yeah, he was, you know, he's my mentor. Uh, he's really, really smart. He, I call him the GOAT, the, the greatest of all time, the Michael Jordan of health educators. So that was cool. Although I was already working with him, but it was cool to bring him on a podcast. And then Dr. Bruce Lipton, somebody that I have studied for so long, read the biology of belief, like he's changed my life. And I was able to get him on my podcast a couple of years ago. That was super, super cool. And then um, Dr. John Demartini, uh, I'm not sure you're familiar if you're familiar with his work. Uh, he talks a lot about not so much the health and nutrition, but more about uh, living on purpose with your purpose, like setting your values. He's a trained um, chiropractor, but he's transitioned more into like the mindset part. I've, he's been on the show a couple of times. So I would say those are the, the top three that I was really like kind of nervous about, excited, you know, excited to interview Dr. Pampa, Dr. Bruce Lipton and Dr. John D. Martini. Mm, that's very cool. Um, yeah, there's a big focus recently on sleep and light. I wonder if that's something that you took seriously at the start or whether it's something that you, uh, started to kind of investigate more recently and whether you noticed a similar kind of leap in function when you started looking at it. Yeah. Sleep and light. So, so interesting, right? The circadian rhythm that we have, I'm actually finishing up Dr. Sachin Panda's book, the the Diabetes Circadian Code. So it's the second one to the Circadian Code, 
And he makes a pretty good argument that when you when you are eating out of balance of this uh, your suprachiasmatic nucleus, this internal clock that you have that has every organ set on a specific time to consume the right amount of food at the right time, when you eat out of balance, it's going to create problems, uh, potentially diabetes, insulin resistance, high glucose levels. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me that we don't want to be eating at night. You definitely don't want to be eating before bed for, for, for many reasons there. And then there was also a study that came out and it kind of, I didn't like the study because I do intermittent fasting and I always skip breakfast. I just feel really good skipping breakfast. I always used to say, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. It's the dumbest meal of the day. Skip it. Just have lunch and dinner. And then this study came out and then there's a lot of other research that came out, but this study specifically came out from the University of Alabama, Dr. Courtney Peterson, where they wanted to determine if early time restricted feeding was better than not. Meaning there was two different groups. The first group was eating between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. They had a total amount of calories, I forget the number, but 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. was their eating window. So they had breakfast and they skipped dinner. The other group, same calories, same food, and they measured all this in a lab, by the way. So that was pretty pretty well done. They um, uh, skipped breakfast and had lunch and dinner. So they had an eating window, I think, of 12 to 8 p.m. So they ate later on in the day, but everything was controlled. Everything was the same with the exception of one group ate earlier, one group ate later. So they measured different things. They measured the um, LC3A protein looking at autophagy, and they could do that in labs. And fortunately, I can't do that at home. I would love to do that. But they looked at when autophagy was occurring or how much. And they also looked at the SIRT1 gene, the sirtuin genes, which, as you know, it's a very important gene that protects telomeres and DNA. It's called the longevity gene. And she saw after four days, the group that was eating breakfast, the early time restricted feeding group, had... 22% more autophagy after four days than the other group and 10% more of the sirtuin one gene. Uh, and then Dr. Sachin Panda has all this research saying that you should eat most of your calories earlier on in the day. So it changed the way I teach. And uh, even though I know the research, I still tend to skip breakfast because I just feel so good, but I'm now being more intentional with having more of my calories earlier on in the day. I think the overall goal is just to avoid eating at nighttime and eating at bed, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that. And, and if you uh, see the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, in all of that because, and, and, and I think there's a lot of ways to come at it. You know, uh, I do think that using somewhat, um, tweaked up false, uh, settings, are a great way to get at specific information. So these kinds of, you know, ward studies where everything's controlled for or many things are controlled for are great for understanding certain things. And Kevin Hall does some really interesting stuff with that too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I often go back to thinking about observations of people who were, who were living in societies that we might call primitive, although I would call advanced in in some ways uh, yeah. compared to us and For sure. they had no knowledge of of each other you know they were from all over the, the the globe um spanning hundreds of years and there's plenty of good data from people like weston price and you know one of my favorite books primitive man and his foods by arnold de Vries, who talks about all of these um different groups described what, by what's the name of the book 
primitive man and his foods. And um, it up. it's it, it talks about you know what explorers had seen over the last few hundred years, and there's this incredible variety of uh, societies and sizes of of civilizations and groups of people, the habitats that they were in. Obviously, Weston Price across all of these groups, he found maybe one in two thousand teeth had any sort of caries whatsoever. Yeah chronic disease was basically absent and that's from the inuit people eating mainly carnivore uh you know um, blubber and mussels and whatever they could find um but also berries when they were there and then the 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 maasai um people who were eating cow's blood milk um and sometimes the meat people in the hebrides in scotland who would have seabirds eggs and sometimes lamb and lots of oats and then tropical people who were picking fruit off the trees whenever they felt like it. People in the South Sea Islands having coconut and fish. You know, there is many. there are many ways to skin that cat. And I think we want to tell ourselves sometimes just those stories about what is obviously the case from our evolutionary pressures when really there's this huge variety of carbon takes and eating at particular times of day and um, you know, dietary niches that have been forced onto people that they thrive on. And I think that doing what works for you based on your background and what you actually like doing is the thing that is primus, is, is you know, is number one for me because um, if you enjoy it, then it will be more sustainable. And that depends on who you are as an individual. Well said. That's totally fair. hundred percent. Yeah. I love, I love your mindset around that. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, you pay attention to how you're feeling. Uh, if you feel really good and you see that, okay, this study shows you might get some more benefits eating breakfast and skipping dinner. It's like, maybe that's not for you. You feel really good. Just keep doing what you're doing. Right. So I love your point there. And plus the studies, you can't m manipulate or I shouldn't say manipulate, but duplicate what they did in a controlled setting with all of the other variables, as you mentioned, that go on in day to day. So for sure, I love that you have that mindset. I agree with you 100%. Well, I tend to skip breakfast, so I don't like that study either. But <laughs> um, if I'm hungry in the morning, I don't feel bad about eating breakfast, even before Same. that study. You know, I, I, I sometimes eat quite a large breakfast of um, whatever I feel like or whatever it's there. So, I, you know, if my diet's heavy on red meat and eggs um, and fish and shellfish um Same. you know sometimes i'll just have lots and lots of whatever i've got sitting there until i feel full it might be 9 a.m it might be 9 p.m but um i think that's one thing that's great about eating a ketogenic diet is that um, you get a lot of the benefits of fasting while eating <laughs> so true and it comes naturally right it's like you're just so satiated and it's like, you don't, you don't really have to say, uh, I need to start fasting. It's kind of like, oh, I just started fasting without realizing it because you're just so satiated and full. It goes hand in hand. But I always teach people, let's say somebody is a pure sugar burner and they want to do keto and fasting and they want to do both. I, I usually recommend first getting them low carb and then keto and then pairing it with fasting. But it kind of happens naturally because they start doing it just out of the way they feel like they naturally just skip a meal or go a little bit longer to your point. Cause you're just so satisfied. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I understand, understand that approach completely as well, because 
you can minimize keto flu and you can mm-hmm. um, let people get used to the idea of this kind of uh, strange new life that they that they're stepping into. Yeah, I like that approach versus like cold turkey. Uh, it's you want you want to train for uh, fasting is like a muscle. You want to train for it just like you would train for a marathon, train for a five k. There needs to be some some work done before you just go into a fast. So I think low carb keto is a great way to build that muscle. And then it just happens naturally. Mm, yeah. I really like that. And so, I mean, we've covered so much. I wonder if uh, now is a good time to sort of round it off and tell people where they can find you to uh, hear more of this stuff in the future. Yeah. Let's land the plane, man. This has been a great, fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you're a great host. My website is benazadi.com. You could find my podcast on there. My book is on there, my programs, my courses. Uh, I also have the Keto Camp podcast. Uh, we're, we're on all platforms. So camp is spelled with the K, Keto Camp. And the website has all of that. So I would just say go to the website, benazadi.com, and you could find everything on there. Superb. Well, thanks again, Ben. I really, really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Can't wait to bring you on my show. So thanks for having me today. Thanks for listening, everyone, or watching. Please uh, do hit subscribe wherever you're watching or listening, and um, you won't miss out on future episodes. Please also leave a review. It takes just 30 seconds and really, really helps to get these exciting messages out there. And if you or anyone you know could benefit from a mental health tune-up, head over to metsy.com. That's M-E-T-P-S-Y.com for myself and psychiatrist, Dr. Rachel Brown, coach people to better mental health.